Let's pray. Lord God, come and exalt your name today. Advance your gospel in our hearts, in our lives, in this church, in this community. Father, increase our faith. I pray that your grace will affect us deeply today. Do your work among us, Father. May none of us leave today unaffected, unchanged by your grace. Father, we need to see more of your glory. So, Father, come and open our eyes to see the glory through your word. Father, come and do your good work in us. May we leave here with a greater love and joy for you because of Christ Jesus. Father, for what he has accomplished on our behalf. And Father, as you do it for us, Father, we pray that you will do it around the world. Father, specifically today, the Mazab people, the Berbers, over 169,000 of them, Father. Lord, they don't have a Bible in their language. Father, they need missionaries to come and to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that missionaries will go to the Berbers, that they will establish churches, that you'll raise up leaders among the Berber people, Father. Lord, we pray that you will enable translation to happen, Lord, and that they will have your word in their own mother tongue. Father, these folks are trapped in a false religion. Break those chains, we pray. Father, as you do it for them, I pray that you'll do it in central West Virginia through Grace Church by Cannon. Father, new church started last year. We pray that you will establish yourself among your people in that small body, Lord, and that they will have a heart for you, a heart for the gospel, that it will go forth from the pulpit, Lord, and that Colin and his family will be strengthened by your word. Lord, that the church body will surround them and together, Father, they will be united in one voice and they will both live and share the love of Jesus. Father, we also pray for the International Mission Board. Lord, may they go among the Berber people and among others, among other unreached people, Lord, we pray for the missionaries who are already overseas, who have said goodbye to family, have sacrificed so much, Father. But Lord, in comparison, it's really so little looking to your glory. Father, I pray that you'll be with the missionaries and their family. Strengthen them today. Lord, I'm sure that there are some who are weary, some who are maybe faltering or questioning their decision. Father, remind them of your assurance. Remind them of the sure ground that they stand on because of Christ. And may they keep going. May they persevere. And may you save many among their ministry, Father, we pray. Lord, we again pray for the other churches here in King George. We are not the only one who wants to see Christ glorified. Father, I pray that from the pulpit, the truth will be proclaimed and it will be heard among your people. That your gospel will go forth in King George and Father, here in Dahlgren, that the gospel will be embraced and loved and Jesus will be seen for who he is. 
Lord, we pray for the ABC ministry here in the Dahlgren area. Father, we pray for wisdom. We pray for an entrance into people's lives. Father, make it happen, I pray. Lord, we pray for the salvation of unbelievers. And Lord, we pray that you'll give us a greater sense of your power within us. Keep us, sustain us, feed us this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. In your Bibles, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 4. And as always, if you don't have a Bible this morning, please raise your hand and we'll give one to you. If you don't own it, we'd like to give that to you as our gift to you. It's on page 569 in the church Bible. In verse 1, there's a great momentum that's been building in Isaiah of the coming day of the Lord. A day when the people are begging, they're begging for rescue a day when the Lord alone will be standing and all of mankind, every single person is in awe of who he is and judgment will commence. It's a day described in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 12 as a day against all the proud and lofty, against all that's lifted up and it shall be brought low. And in verse 17, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And then in verse 20, In that day mankind will cast away all their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. The day of the Lord is a day of reckoning. It's a day of divine victory. But rather than everything being in doom and loss, on that day there's a promise of glory and survival, of cleansing and of purity, of a new creation and a divine dwelling for that new life, and shelter for protection, refuge from that judgment. How loving and gracious Our God is in his divine victory when he alone stands, his people experience love and grace and joy. On that day when he's vindicating his divine right and his superiority, he reaches out and he shields people. In Isaiah chapter 4, he tells us how he does this. So please stand as I read Isaiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, And the fruit of the land shall be pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its mist by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. I'm going to read in verse 5 and 6. 
that the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and a smoke and a shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Amen. Please be seated. May the word of the Lord lift our eyes to him and fill our hearts with his glory. Here in Isaiah, God tells how he will fulfill his promise and how the good news will come. In that day, the branch of the Lord will save the people. The branch will cleanse them. The branch will give and sustain their life. The branch protects and guards. And in that day, the people will have satisfaction in the true beauty of the branch. God's promise is a rescuer. A rescuer who saves his people, who washes them and loves them with deeply personal and beautiful affection. This morning, I want us to look at the branch and what the branch of the Lord does for his people. We're in the second week of our Advent series, The Promise, a promise from God to save his people from judgment and redeem his creation for his glory. Christmas is a fulfillment of that promise. Last week we began with the promised gospel, the promise that relationship with a holy, righteous, and good and perfect God is possible. He initiates and keeps the relationship. The good news that sin in the garden was not the end of paradise and intimacy with God. The judgment in the garden, the curse that God gave to Adam and Eve was not the end, but rather the means of how God will restore them. At the fall, God promised to overcome all evil and to bring salvation. Romans tells us this promise was a person. Jesus Christ is the promise. He is the one long waited for. Last week in Genesis 3.15, God talking to the serpent said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Those pronouns embodied by Christ. There will be one man who will make right what Adam and Eve and all of their descendants since. That includes you and it includes me. There will be one man who will make right what we have done. He will fix what is broken. He will give what you and I cannot specifically and most importantly the love and the obedience and the worship to God. And he will satisfy the deep longing in our soul that nothing else can fill. He will bring to life what has been destroyed. God declared in Genesis how it shall happen. The offspring shall bruise the head of the serpent. And the serpent shall bruise the heel. 
This is God's plan. It's God's plan set in motion in the annals of, of history, in real history. In this world where real pain and suffering and death is the result of sin, there's hope and peace and love. For a broken people where the hope and peace and that love seem to be a constant yet an elusive aim, Christ came. God comes and fills to the overflowing in people His grace he reconciles, and He gives an enduring love. It's a glorious and purposeful plan that He put in motion from the very beginning. God was not reacting to disobedience. He was not caught off guard in the garden. He was not unaware the fall set in motion a great unfolding plan that leads to a Redeemer, to one who saves God's people and instills an eternal relationship with them. Where God's grace is magnified and it's in, God is exalted and He's experienced in a deeply personal way. This plan is revealed more and more as you read into the Scriptures. His grace would manifest in creation in a stunning, in a magnificent way. In a babe born in Bethlehem who grows into a man and who then dies for sinners. And then He raises to life overcoming that sin and that death. A stunning victory over that sin and that death. The Scriptures tell God's story of redemption for His people and the glory of His name. The true story that says we in our natural selves are so incredibly inept. We are so incredibly depraved. And so focused on us. And we live in a culture that feeds and cultivates the natural self. That where it's only God's grace that a relationship with Him is possible. It's only by God's grace that salvation can occur. And His grace freely given through the one who is the only way. He is the truth and He is the life. The promised gospel in the garden, an expectation and a hope builds from there. It builds for a deliverer who will restore God's people. He will restore to them all that's been lost to sin and to disobedience. Hints are given to us book after book. Prophecies are foretold. Salvation is shaped by the passages in the Old Testament. Sometimes clearly when you read it. Other times it's in shadows and there's hints that you've got to put together. The progression culminates in the cries of the people 
for the anointed one to come, God's anointed, the Messiah, to come and to rescue them and to put in place once and for all God's kingdom and his glory that he's promised. The cries of the people say in a loud single voice, we cannot save ourselves. We are hopeless. Remember your promise, God. Remember your word to us through the prophets. Remember your covenant with Abraham and then with David. Remember from generation to generation the lineage of the offspring. Remember me, O God. You see, in God's unfolding, great, marvelous, glorious plan, it's God who initiates, and it's man who responds. He initiates a hopefulness for thousands of years. Listen to what Edmund Clowney wrote about this. Only God's revelation could maintain a drama that stretches over thousands of years as though they were only days or hours. Only God's revelation can build a story where the end is anticipated from the beginning, where the guiding principle is not chance or fate, but promise. Human authors may build fiction around a plot they have devised, but only God can shape history to a real and ultimate purpose. God did not accomplish His purpose all at once. God's saving work is framed in periods of history that God determines by the word of His promise. This morning we're going to look at that promise in more detail. The announcement of good news in the garden is realized in the promise of the one who is to come. The coming of the Messiah, the Savior of God's people. The one who comes from God, who is God in the flesh, and brings God's people to Him forever. The Messiah is the hero of the Bible. He is God's promise and His glorious revelation of who God is. We need to keep in mind when we are reading both the Old and the New Testaments. When we're reading the Bible, we are not just reading about God's plan. We're not an audience in a theater watching the play unfold up on stage. You and I are part of this real life drama. You and I are in desperate need of this Messiah that the Bible talks about. We are the ones standing right in the middle for Him to come for us. I hope this morning will be a great encouragement for you. Knowing that He has come and He's coming again. That's what the Scriptures say. So let's turn to them now and see this plan unfold. In Isaiah chapter 4 verse 1. There are women who take hold of a man. They want a husband. They want a relationship that only union with a man brings. 
Earlier in chapter 3, verse 6, men take hold of a man. They want him to rule over him. Both the men and the women have become desperate, and they're looking for some kind of security to rely on, to hold on to. They want safety and assurance. They're not looking for material possessions to combine their incomes and live more comfortably. Their security, they say, will come from the one they belong to. If only we'll be called by your name. Let us be called by your name. Verse 1 ends with them crying out and saying, Take away our reproach. Because of sin and disobedience, they have descended into such sorrow and agony. It's like a hole that has no bottom to it. It's a pit that goes further and further, and you continually sink further down. I don't know, maybe maybe you're feeling like that this morning. Maybe you're crying out, take away my reproach. Take away this guilt that I feel. Maybe you've come to see your sin has brought you so incredibly low. I pray that God in His mercy is gracious to you this morning. And you will see today who the branch of the Lord is and what He does for His people. It's only He who saves. So in verse 1, we have... The women crying out, if we'll only be called by your name, take away our reproach. To understand how we got to this point in verse 1, we need to know what has happened from Genesis when God promised the gospel that he would crush evil and he'll save his people to this point in Isaiah. From the time when God promised an offspring that would vindicate through the seed of the woman, to this time of misery and despair. From from Adam's descendants, God chose the man Abraham. And He promised through His family that God would bless all nations. The seed that was promised is traced through Adam's seed, through Abraham, to a tribe of the family. And the seed would then give rise to a royal dynasty that would have an everlasting dominion, the Scriptures say. From Abraham to Moses, God formed this family into a nation called Israel. And the nation finds itself in Egypt, enslaved under ruthless tyranny, back-breaking bondage. And then we have a glimpse of what redemption is going to be like. We're told in Exodus that God took this nation, Israel, out of the house of slavery into the promised land. God delivering his people and then placing them in a land of his choosing and him caring for them. Yet because of this uh, disobedience, they had to learn to trust God in the wilderness for 40 years. And then God brings them into the promised land. And God promises to be their God and they will be His people. He will rule over them with justice and with might that can't be shaken. 
God appoints judges over these people to lead them, and they act like kings. They make decrees, and they form armies, and they protect, but they're not given dynasties. The people are to look to God for their lasting hope. One of them, Joshua, is described as an ideal leader, but the judges after him lead less and less effectively. There's an expectation with the judges that builds that only a royal dynasty will ease Israel's troubles. The people insist on having a king like all the rest of the nations, and God gives them one. The first one looks like a king. Around other people, he acts like a king, but he's the empty shell of one. So God raises up another king named David, a man after his own heart, showing that the heart of the king is what makes a good ruler, a king that rules God's people in a way that honors God. God makes a covenant with David. He promises to establish his house forever. He tells David that he will establish a dynasty with David. Yet with David's son, Solomon, who is wise, who began so well towards the end of his life, chased after other gods. Because of his unfaithfulness, the kingdom of Israel is divided into two. You have the northern kingdom, Israel, and then the southern kingdom, Judah. Even at this point, there's still a hint, a glimmer of hope that God will restore his people and fulfill his promise to David to establish his house forever. The promise of the seed is threaded through the line of Judah to the house of David. David's kingship, though, is not the glory of Israel. His kingship prepared the world for the son of David, the seed, to come. And not only for Israel, but for the whole world. Lord willing, we'll look more into the promised king next week. And this brings us to Isaiah, a divided kingdom. A kingdom where men and women of Israel are crying out, in desperation. Their sin is ever before them. God's promise seems to be fading away. Their failures, their disobedience, their sin has brought them so incredibly low. It's a burden that they get tired and weary of carrying and they're dragged down and they're helpless. And then in verse 2 through 4, Isaiah says, in a time appointed by God, on his day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the branch will cleanse the people, and they will be holy and purified. What happens to the people? They're cleansed. They're stripped of all their guilt, and they're made blameless in God's sight. All residue of the past is done away with. It's washed away. And all that remains is a people fit for the presence of a holy God. This branch of the Lord saves God's people and dwells with them forever. 
we learn other parts of Scripture that the branch of the Lord is a title for the Messiah. The promised one will save a remnant. He'll make them holy. And with them, he will rule over the nations. The branch is of David. And here in verse 2, the branch is the Lord's. Scripture says both. The branch is David's and the branch is God's. The branch is the Lord's. There's a dual nature of this branch. He is of the Lord, he's divine, and he is a man. He's the perfect God-man. Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 33, verse 15. Page 662 of the church Bible. Jeremiah 33, 15. God says in verse 15, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In Jeremiah, the branch is sprung up for David. He's of David. And back in Isaiah chapter 4, the branch is of the Lord. The God-man, the righteous branch, will ensure justice and provide righteousness to God's people. Picture the branch of a tree. In one sense, you have a family tree. The very essence of a tree is in that branch. With a family tree, you have the human dynasty occurring, that promise of the seed, that offspring one day that God promises generation after generation. He's of David. In the divine sense, the Hebrew writer says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The branch of the Lord is God-man, full of divinity and full of humanity. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, God tells us that the branch is his servant who completely removes sin from God's people. Later in chapter 6, verse 12, we're told the branch is a man who builds the temple of the Lord, a temple for worship and adoration. The branch enables true worship to the living God. And there's other scriptures we can look at for the Messiah. Isaiah 7 verse 14 says the Messiah's mother would be a virgin. Chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 say the Messiah would be great. His name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His rule will go on for all eternity and peace will endure. Micah 5.2 tells us the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 6, we're told the Messiah will perform miracles, the most glorious being spiritual healing with salvation. Chapter 53, verses 2 through 12, tell of the Messiah's suffering, his sacrifice being the will of the Lord to make many counted for righteousness. He will bear iniquities that are not of his own, bearing sin of many. Becoming an atoning 
sacrifice for their sin so that he can be an intermediary for them. And then later in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, they tell the Messiah would heal broken lives. He will preach the good news of salvation and bring to a reality real freedom. Captives will be set free from sin. Hearts will be filled with a renewed hope and a love for God. And in chapter 4, verse 3, we're told who this is done for. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. These are people who will be fit by God for an eternal relationship with Him. Their names are already recorded in the book of life. And these people will do more than just survive past this judgment. They will thrive in His presence. They will forever bask in God's sovereignty, His gracious rule, where He satisfies every longing in the heart. Now look with me please at verse 4. The branch of the Lord does something so wonderful and marvelous. It says, In that day, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its mist by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. The people of God who are clamoring for some kind of relief from their sin in verse 1. In verse 4, they have purity and washing from the Lord that removes their filthiness and the immorality of sin from them. There's an inner uncleanness to these people. There's an inner hole, if you will, that cannot be satisfied. There are longings that they look for in creation and nothing is working and they see their sin and they have this desire that cannot be filled in verse 1 and they're clamoring and they're crying out, woe is me. And in verse 4, there are no stains. There's no leftover spills. There's no missed areas. God's people have been made new for Him. The Lord, another title for the Messiah, is the one who readies God's people for this new, pure life with God. What a glorious outcome for a people who are reckless. Only at times are they obedient and they're clamoring for some type of aid to their life. The Lord comes in And washes all that away and says, you have been made new. You are now clean because of what I have done. So what are we to take away from this passage in Isaiah? What are we to make of the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah? The answer is given in three words. Trust. Remember. And thank. Trust, remember, and thank. First, the prophecies in the Old Testament were not random. There's a reason why I ran down a list earlier. These are not scattered projections. 
They form a unified promise that God will save His people through a magnificent Savior, the Messiah, who is both divine and from the house of David. He is one who fulfills every prophecy in the Old Testament. He is the culmination of God's great plan of salvation. The Messiah is God's grace to mankind. He is the embodiment of God's love and His mercy. The Messiah is the only one who cleanses these people who are clamoring for some kind of relief. And He does it for all eternity. You and I live in an age when the Messiah has already come. Romans 1 says, Jesus Christ is the promise. He's already come and He's fulfilled the promise of the Gospel. We call Jesus the Christ, not because that's His last name, but because of what Christ means. The word Christ comes from the Greek, meaning Messiah. The Greek word Christos is a translation for Messiah. So calling Jesus the Christ, we're saying Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the Lord, Jesus who fulfills every prophecy in the Old Testament. He's the one appointed by God to save His people. The birth of Jesus, the celebration of Christmas, is the birth of the Messiah. A child was born on Christmas and the Son of God was given so that He would face temptation and withstand it for us. He would be stripped of all dignity and honor to die a sinner's death in the place of those who deserve death. In His life, He would fulfill the obedience needed to be in the presence of God. In His death, He would cleanse God's people and give them new life in His name. See Jesus this morning as the one promised. He is the Messiah, the promised one. See Him as the one born to die in your place so that you can live in peace and in righteousness. God says all those who confess their sin and trust that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that only He can save you from your guilt and your shame. If you believe in Him as the Messiah, then He is your refuge. He cleanses the sin. And I trust that God will have mercy upon you and you will see that and you will see Jesus and you'll be saved. The psalmist says in Psalm 34, 22, the Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. If you trust in Jesus Christ, your sin has been washed away. There is no stain in God's eyes. You are being fit to be in the presence of God forever. No condemnation will be upon you if you trust in Him. Believe in Him today and know the beauty and the glory and the pride and the honor of God.
Next, the promise of God to send the Messiah and save His people means that God is faithful. If you trust in Jesus today, your faith is placed in a God who makes promises and He fulfills His promise. He delivers on them. He's dependable and always follows through with His promise to save. When you're down and out, not if, but when you are down and out, we are all at some point in our lives down and out, and your faith is wavering, you can't see the end. Remember God's faithfulness to redeem His people. The thousands of years it took for the promise to point to a Savior the 400 years between Old Testament and New Testament, and then Jesus being born. For us who live after His birth, who are waiting for His return, His promise to send His Spirit to guide us, to live within us, to help us, to transform us, is a promise you can depend on. I believe with everything that's in me, that God's Spirit is doing a work within me. It's a work that I cannot do. And when I feel like giving up, my weakness has me feeling sorry for myself, and I'm feeling low. It's God's Spirit that fills my mind with the truth of His Word. He fills my heart with a renewed awe of His glory. And He takes me further into the presence of God. And I'm not alone in this. If you trust in Jesus today, He does it for all His people. So look to Jesus and be reminded that God is faithful. His grace is for you. And be filled with an unwavering hope that will carry you all the way to eternity with Him. Lastly, this Christmas, be thankful. Be thankful for God's promise that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Be thankful that in Christ you are washed. Your sin has been cleansed and you are made whole again. Be thankful that in Christ you have new life. Christmas says to God's people that through Jesus Christ, God removes sin. He removes your sin, every stain, and He makes you pure in His eyes. Christmas means freedom is coming. Freedom from all guilt and shame. For those who look to Jesus to take away their reproach, His beauty and His glory is ours. He gives it to us, and it's ours forever. He is forever our refuge. Take time this Christmas to thank God for the birth of the Savior. You and I have reason to celebrate this Christmas. Not in how the world sees Christmas, not in how they try to hijack the meaning of Christmas. They skip over the deep roots of what Christmas really means. You and I who trust in Jesus Christ, have reason to be on our knees in thankfulness to God and have immense joy and peace knowing that God is for us and not against us. 
Jesus is the answer to God's unwavering commitment to his people. Jesus is our hope everlasting. He is the promise fulfilled. Let's pray.